Hello, this is Eric with Dungeons and Tangents. You are tuning in to one of the early episodes of this podcast, so I wanted to make sure you know the quality of these early episodes is inferior to later episodes. I recommend checking out episode 14 or later. It's around that time that we really get our process figured out. If you're listening to this early material, I hope you forgive us for our learning curve, and thank you very much for listening. All right, welcome to episode six of Dungeons and Tangents. I'm Robert Sherman. I'm Eric Dewhurst. And today's topic is miniatures. Uh, I, I think the first thing we would have to talk about before we get into why you use them would be, do you need to? No, you, you don't. Well, I, th- I think I mentioned in a previous episode, the first time I ever played D&D, there were no miniatures, there was no drawing on anything. It was just described. So it's absolutely possible to run a game without any physical medium. After experiencing D&D that way and experiencing it with maps and, and figures, I can't imagine going back mm-hmm. to doing it the other way, to doing it with no physical medium. I, I'm a very tactile person. I like physical things. I like seeing things in space. It gives me the tools that my brain needs to build the picture uh, and the, the world and without that, it's uh, it's more effort. I mean, it's just it, it comes down to my brain is spending more time trying to understand the reality rather than enjoying the reality and being in it. I think it really depends on your players, the kind of game you want to run, the rule system you're using. We're going to assume you're using Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. That's what we're That's using true. right now. Um, but you can go either way with or without. But for the purposes of this episode, let's assume that you're going with because it's the whole topic of, of this episode. Right. So we'll focus on what you know, why you would use them, what they bring to the table. Uh, for the most part, why I use them, it's uh, I, I find it's engaging. Uh, it really helps establish uh, a, a tactical precedent for you know what you can and can't do, um, perspective, line of sight, things like that. Distance is incredibly key. Um, the the kind of interesting. You can go really deep into the experience of managers as far as do you get ones that look like your characters? Do you not? Do, right. you, do you use uh, Lego minifigs? Do you use right. miniatures? Do you, do you paint them? Do you not paint them? It can escalate quickly. Uh, I, I love miniatures. I love being able to look at them and say, here's, you know, I think this really mirrors my character. Sometimes you'll build your character after the miniature, or sometimes vice versa. You can modify those miniatures. You. Uh, but I feel like they're really enrich the experience if you have the ability to, to embrace that. It's my understanding that there were war games before Dungeons and Dragons. Chainmail. Chainmail, and before Chainmail, it was uh, people other war games that were just mm-hmm. like you've got your soldiers and you're uh, reenacting uh, historical battles. That was the basis of what became the tactical aspects of Dungeons and Dragons. Admittedly, my knowledge is very limited. <laughs> very this is, limited. This is based on looking at a couple Wikipedia articles okay, and, and maybe some other, other sources. It seems that the concept of the miniature has been around for decades before Dungeons & Dragons, maybe centuries before Dungeons & Dragons. 
you could argue that chess itself, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, centuries old, um, is a miniatures game. It's old name. It's Yeah. In these days, that's kind of saying something. So. <laughs> the reason I bring up the, the history is because originally they were purely tactical. Um, originally being before Dungeons & Dragons, they were purely tactical. Mm-hmm. It was about, my figure is here, can it hit that figure over there with whatever weapon it has? If you, I mean, if you look at the, the broad spectrum of how many miniatures there are and how much detail the artists put into them, those artists are are bringing more than just an object that represents something else bringing something that's engaging in a, an imaginative way and that's an excellent point because you could use a pen cap you could use a quarter or a coin or something like that and that would be something that would help you establish and maintain you know the structure the details the, all that information that data of combat tactics and all that but at the same time would bring you out of that experience right yeah it would yeah. disengage you from what you're doing uh, it would just it would completely disconnect you from what you're trying to achieve from an imagination yeah. standpoint, right? Whereas a miniature does that, but then helps you, you know, get into that mindset more. Right, because every miniature has got you know their their sword out or their bow out, and you feel like they they are a part of the setting. It, it's like watching a movie when you've got the the miniatures down there. It's an odd and very small movie, but there are sometimes very picturesque scenes that you get out of putting a bunch of miniatures down and then you're like oh we're all in a row and we're being ambushed and I can mm-hmm. see from different angles this very movie-like scene where the characters are uh, interacting with one another and you could put a camera around them and shoot a movie I mean obviously they're not moving but <laughs> well, and I've seen some some podcasts on YouTube where people you know really get into you know doing their actual plays but that they'll stop and they'll take pictures of where the managers are this oh. the like the scenery is done that's really well and there's, I mean there's nothing wrong with using you know other non-miniature things with it you could use a quarter you could use a pen cap um, you're not always going to have you're often not going to have the ability or the resource the time or the inclination to completely craft an entire you know diorama of the setting for a one random encounter that you're going to have and never have again right? right but just having a mini that you can relate to and associate with your character is very powerful. And then you can really just kind of, you know, make up the rest as you go, you know, grab like a dice box or um, a book or something like that, a pen or a marker to represent something else. Um, Just being able to kind of connect with that one mini that represents your character can be really powerful. As a DM, mm -hmm. I want every monster to look different so that I, when I write down orc number one yes. I look at orc number one and I remember that's orc number one orc right. number two is a little bit different that can, that can be very difficult you get a bunch of minis that are identical um, but it's very it's much easier to get minis that are identical if you're going to buy them in bulk or something like that because yeah. it's, it's easier and it's cheaper it can it can be an investment to, to use miniatures in a game so in the beginning I would definitely recommend starting out small get something for your character you know any really basic encounters that's probably one thing that we, you know, we should probably cover too, even just in passing, is tokens. You can use the, you can, oh, yeah. Pathfinder has a bunch of them that are great. They're just yeah. these cardboard tokens that have really nice art on them, right? Um, and they're flat, so they're two dimensional, but I mean, they look phenomenal. Yeah, and they usually, uh, you can buy the token packs and they'll have yes. stands for, I don't know how, maybe yeah. not all of them, but you know, a couple dozen. Uh, 
there's pros and cons. They're flat, so they don't have like they're not quite as engaging as a full 3D miniature, but they're flat, so they store great. Like, yeah, they don't take up a bunch of space. And you're not using them, and for the price of I don't know what one oh, of those packs is. Yeah, phenomenal compared yeah. to miniatures. Like, and you get hundreds. Yes, hundreds of of usable miniatures that represent things you're going to encounter in the game. You may not know what you're going to try and run that one day. You may not have a bunch of space, etc. But you can have something that covers a real breadth of encounters, yeah. creatures, right? Um, and not take a bunch of space, not sink a bunch of money into it. Yeah. And then be prepared, right? And it's still engaging enough. Oh, absolutely, yes. Enough. <laughs> you know, buying your first mini, usually it's going to be you as a player buying one for your character. Mm-hmm. The the question is, who should buy miniatures? right. Who being a player or a DM, right? Yeah. So it could be either one. It could be both. I think if you if you really want to have something specific, you should go and get it. I think that the main criteria there are, the, are kind of the, the standard guideline is you should never expect somebody else to have what you're going to be needing That's or true. feel that, that it's their obligation to have it for you as a player or a DM, right? So as a, as a DM, you shouldn't expect your players to have it. If, if as a DM running the game, you're going to be the one deciding whether or not you're going to use that kind of uh, physical representation for encounters. That's right? true. So at that point, you are setting the bar or the standard expectation. Mm-hmm. But you can use counters. They right. can be expensive. They, they may not be something that somebody knows even where to go to get them. You know. Well, well, it's uh, I think it's worthy of note to to talk about where to get them and and how much they cost. I. Uh, Actually, let's, let's bring out one or two. So uh, Robert has here, let's see, just, I don't know, there's a random. So that's a, a a zombie. And where did you get that? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, I have gone to a couple different local brick-and-mortar stores here in town. I've also gone to uh, Miniature Market, got right. stuff there. I've gotten a couple things on Amazon. Amazon tends to be... A little spendy, like unnecessarily spendy. Yeah. But every once in a while, if you've got something that they're not making anymore, some obscure reseller that'll be selling on Amazon, you're going to pay more, but they might have it when nobody else has it, right? Right, right. There was a, a Pathfinder um, Humble Bundle, I think it was, oh. where they, you can get some of the figs. I think it was Pat, uh, Humble Bundle, I'm not sure. These are pre-painted plastic from Wizards of the Coast. I forget who manufactured them. But this is called Harbinger, back in the days of 3rd edition, 3.5, that uh, they had the Dungeons & Dragons miniatures rule set and all that, and they were really pushing it. And you could get a bunch of miniatures for very reasonable pricing. And I got as, I picked up as many of those as I could, which at the time wasn't much, but it's it formed the backbone of kind of my, my mini collection. These days with uh, the Reaper, mm-hmm. uh, I think that would probably be... Two dollars. This um, a zombie like this. I probably got in a pack from Ripper Bones. Probably had three or four in it for probably six bucks. Automatic. Okay, that makes but sense. But if you're gonna get something like it's, a, you're gonna buy a specific single mini, and it's gonna mm-hmm. be a Ripper Bone, and it's gonna be your standard medium sized creature for the yeah. standard scale. You're gonna be lucky to get something that at two to three bucks. Usually, you're gonna be, you know be more three to four dollar range. And if it's, an, if it's anything that's very intricate like that. You're looking at six bucks. Yeah. And then it's going to go higher than that if you get into your large, gigantic Right. These are all the the standard sizes. Exactly. And then they have uh, all the way up to things that are like six inches tall. Yeah. All of these are the same scale, which is, uh, was it it 28 
25 or 28 millimeters high. It's 22. It's what's one inch? It's the one inch scale, isn't it? Oh, is it? So it's the. I didn't think so. I thought it was. I don't know. Uh, I know it's either 25 or 28 is like how tall they are, and that's equivalent to an average person's height. Oh, I thought it was the base. Oh, maybe it is. Because you would because it's the squares and the grids are better than that. Well, that's true. They so they, they fit. They right? fit. They all fit on a one inch square if they're a standard normal size. If they're larger, sometimes they take I have up more. No doubt, the first person watches like these guys are idiots. I know exactly what this means. So yeah. feel free to correct us and educate us. Oh please. Um, and I want to say I thought it was twenty two millimeters, but I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of them for different scales, different sizes. Yeah, but most of them are in the standard scale yes. because they're intended for that one-inch mat, uh, the one-inch grid, uh, or the pseudo one-inch hex grid. Um, right, and that becomes important when you get in, you know, just to make sure that everything's consistent and all that, but then also, you get a, like a bigger figure. Like, let's say this guy right here is a great example. So, if you want to get a picture of these two, they're not different scale. They're the same scale. That's meant to represent that one is a, a, a you know, a huge creature, whereas the other one is a medium creature, or was a large right. creature, right? It's meant to convey the difference in size between them. So, these, these are pre-painted. Mm-hmm. We could talk about painting for a little bit, because it's a thing that happens with miniatures. I paint my miniatures... I don't go to the extent that these painters have gone to make it look real. Right. I don't care enough about my miniatures to want them to look exactly like what they represent. I think that since they're already just a representation, mm-hmm. I paint all of mine to look like they're made of pewter. And you have developed a technique that is yeah. incredibly effective. And yeah, and that you're not spending days on. on no, I can do. Uh, I think the most I've done, I, I did like 16 at once. All this painting, kind of, you do it in layers. You start with a, a base or maybe a primer, and you put a layer of a, whatever color on, and then you layer on colors on colors, and then they have uh, washes, which yeah, they add definition by laying down very dark tones into the grooves so Mm -hmm. if you have like a slat of wood the artist knows that somebody's going to put a wash on this so they put grooves where the grain of the wood would be so when you put that wash over the grain becomes darker and then they have what are called uh, dry brushing paints you lightly do dry brushing and just touch the tops and it adds highlights to the things that are uh, the most prominent points um, so what, with that base coat, the wash, and the dry brush, you end up adding a lot of contrast to them. Uh, and I just do three things, a base, a wash, and a dry brush, because I don't want to deal with doing that for every color. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a miniature that's got a tunic and a sword and a hat and a feather and boots and chain mail... That's what a, I've got six different colors, and you got to deal with all of those colors, and it might be three different layers for all of those colors. That's too much. So right. I just do them all. And you can see, like, looking at something like this, right, and then something like this, a lot of the detail you get in this, and a lot of the detail is lost in this. And there's different colors right. used here and all that. Um, but you don't need all of these different colors. You don't really want it. The, the 
I, and I wish that you brought one. The, the <laughs> ones that you do, I'll, I'll 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 put a picture up. It is phenomenal, and to me, it's it's astonishing how much detail it adds. The different the, the depth it adds to it by getting into the, the peaks and the valleys of the contours yeah. of the mini. You there's so much detail here that your eye just passes over because it all blends together. Right. And that's the the artists that make these are very cognizant that they need to add depth to them by adding grooves and having them be very mm. dynamic. Uh, and when they do so, um, like the hair on something really stands out when you get that yeah. wash that settles in the grooves. These miniatures are made to be painted. Mm-hmm. And they're made to be painted with very specific paints. They're very thin layers of paint that are very... Uh, very opaque when they need to be opaque and very clear when they need to be clear and they're meant for this scale and they're meant for these miniatures on this plastic you can't just go buy random paint start painting a miniature mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of a racket for because the, the paint's really damn expensive it's, but it's it goes a long cheap. way it does go a long <laughs> way um, it can be very frustrating and can be very defeating if you don't know what you're doing Never done it before. You want to get into painting by five of the same thing and paint it five times and try different techniques. Don't expect it to be right the first time. You can it's also not they have uh, starter kits. Yeah, yeah. Um, my suggestion would be if you're fortunate enough to be in a place where you've got a brick and mortar store that you can go and buy minis at. Uh, they, they may have you know game nights where you come in and people play. Um, the one by my place. They have workshops, yep. and they can actually come in, I think it's once a month, and they'll teach you how to paint a mini. Um, and just being able to the, just get rid of the trial and error and have somebody yep. walk you through and share their experience with you can be phenomenal. But if you don't have that option of a brick-and-mortar store to be you know, face-to-face with somebody getting one-on-one guidance on how to do it, there are you know, so many channels on YouTube just dedicated to showing yep. you how to do this. And it's in great detail. They do a great job. I'm sure it's like anything else. People who do a terrible job, but the ones that I've seen that's been shown me that I've looked through, they're amazing at the, you know the quality and the detail of the shots of getting into it, showing you how to hold it, the little tricks like actually attaching this to something so you hold that. It's like it could be a pill bottle that you put it on, right? So that you have something to hold, hmm. like a handle for the mini as you're painting it instead of just trying to hold this tiny little thing as you're painting <laughs> it and shaking, right? So many things you never think of on your own that make the whole experience easier, make it more effective and efficient. Um, and usually, the ones that I've watched, they will tell you what paint they're using, what brushes yes. they're using. They tell you every aspect of the, the details of how they are producing the, the effect that they're producing. Yes, there's a whole vocabulary to, to the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you these know, small things make a big difference. Yeah, like I said, the brushes, the paints. Yeah, um, it, and you can get discouraged so easily. Have you? I'm gonna, me? Yeah. It's probably <laughs> why I have no inclination. It's probably some <laughs> trauma of trying and not getting there out of the bat and then not being good at something. And my personality can't stand that. It's like, oh, this is terrible. I'm not going to try it again. <laughs> right? But um, it's before just trying, like, oh, I can figure this out. Or, I'll, you know, I have no options. There's a bunch of options for guidance and being able to, for, you know, just education on how to do this. I would definitely encourage them to try that out instead of just trying it on their own because it, to Eric's point it's an expensive hobby can be you can throw away money trying to figure this out on your own right um, but it yeah. can be it can be relatively cheap I've purchased as I went 
only buying what I needed for the next session mm-hmm. or the session after that. And I don't know, maybe at maximum I've spent like $50 a month. That's like absolute maximum. That's a lot, I realize. That's a lot on miniatures. And I, paint. I feel like you thought it brushes. sounded good when you were about to say it, but no, now that it's out, you're yeah. like, oh, wow, that doesn't sound good at all. But, like, in the last uh, in the last month, I've maybe spent, okay, probably $20. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. It might be a problem. Yeah, it, it, it can be. For me, you know, I, my advice would be don't feel like you have to paint them. You don't. Right. Start small with what, you know, maybe just one of your character, just get a handful. If you were in the game, you know, a simple encounter, get something that you can use again. I, I would caution against getting the super specific stuff. Like I need vampires, something like that. Goblins, uh, kobolds, you know. Orcs. Like, orcs, zombies. You're going to use those over and over and over yeah. again. Those would be your go-to minis. But if you're going to get something like super, super specific, you, you might use that once and then not use it again for years, right? Yeah. Uh, we should move on to transportation. I think the, the go-to when I started playing was a tackle box, a fishing tackle box. The person who used to run the games that I played and had one of those tackle boxes that would sit down, have the lids that would open up, and as they opened up, it would have the like accordion trays that would fold out and be kind of you know staggered. I have one of those. It's actually where I store all my paint yep. and brushes for my miniatures now. And it's, it was a strong option. It still is. <clears throat> but things rattle around a bunch, and it's not super friendly in traveling. I was always scared to death to move it because he's like, "Don't tilt it, do not turn it upside down." Like, <laughs> like there's all these rules to, to touching that tackle box, right? Because it was if you upended it, they would all fall over. And at the time, try to keep in mind these are Reaper bones, and they're great. But like this, I'm not too worried about them. If you've got a bunch of pewter figs. The slightest bump or jarring can just ruin that fit. Now I'm going to go off on a tangent. Go ahead. <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't know about miniatures being used for D&D, but somehow I was attracted to the miniatures anyway. And there were these stores that I would go to. They were usually like crystal power stores. Okay. Like the kind where they've got, you know, foot-tall crystals for sale for ridiculous amounts of money but they'd have little pewter miniatures and i used to buy like one or two of those a year i just thought they were the coolest things like wizards holding their staffs up and did it have a crystal on top of the staff some t- often that yes summer. yeah yeah i had i had little dragon at least one maybe two dragons with crystal eyes yep. and standing on a little crystal ball um freaking hokey as hell and i didn't realize that they were functional as well they were all pewter. Heavy. He- very heavy, beautiful sculpting. And uh, I even I actually had a friend who visited England while I was a kid. Uh, and he came back and he brought me uh, a man on a horse miniature. Uh, or a, a soldier on a horse. It had a, a spear mm-hmm. that was that long, made out of pewter. And that was so... Like, you could just bend oh, it yeah. without trying. Just holding it, it would almost bend with its own weight. And the the materials that they make the bone stuff out of, they still have really thin parts at times, and sometimes they'll bend. I learned a technique where if you've got a bones uh, figure of one of these in these, these modern materials, you boil uh, a kettle of water, pour it in a jar or a cup or something, drop the miniature in, the miniature will spring back to its original position. 
it's only the the bending of like the sword or the arms or whatever is all because of it's either been in packaging that squished it a little bit yeah. uh but its original position it'll go back to once it's heated to a certain temperature and that's a phenomenal thing to know because yeah. a lot of these you'll get and in the packaging you'll just see that it's it, they had a blister pack that just wasn't quite big enough for it and in the packaging it's one gorgeous fig with this one like wing or something is out there and it's just completely pulled over to the side and yeah, scrunched it, up in the packaging and you know when you open it up it's gonna go like that but still be totally scrunched yeah, up just, but it'll be fine uh, yeah. just heat it up uh, I haven't tried heating them up like that after painting them I think if you did that it might damage the paint uh, yeah I would I would say you definitely get it before you paint them yeah they're kind of they're pro, pros and cons to the, to the plastics versus the pewter. I think pewter is amazing. If I could have every single one of my miniatures pewter, I would go for it. But it costs like three to five times as much. It does. Uh, they're harder to transport. Back yeah. to transport, they're heavier. They're yeah. more fragile. Uh, and remember, when you're, when you're dealing with these in a game setting, for the it's very likely four or five if not more people are going to be touching them using mm-hmm. them interacting around them eating pizza around them all kinds of things so you, you don't want to have a thousand dollars of minis out there yeah. and you know, <laughs> spills Mountain Dew everywhere and pewter can break like you can snap oh, it oh yeah you can snap it much easier than the plastics yes um, I think I broke uh, the staff off of that wizard mm. uh, that I had when I was a kid um, and I had to oh geez I, I had to store them in like cotton batting practically treat them like they're jewelry because yes. they're that uh, precious. Um, but the, the next step after uh, a tackle box would be foam. So right. a lot of different products utilize foam like this. Is you can, like, there's some pretty standard specifications for this. You can see this has got the same measurement cut out over and over and over again for a certain size of, of miniature. And then so you can store them this way uh, and you can transport them this way. There's a lot of options for that. I have a personal favorite. There's a company called Battle Foam, uh, and they make some great stuff, and that's what I've, I've used today to bring my stuff in. I don't know how to pull this over here without ruining our setup, but uh, it's just it's really well thought out as far as how it handles things and it kind of executes on that. So it's um, something that can just unzip and fold out, and then you have all of your trays right here. Um, so you can see that one, and they've got some spacers to keep lids on it to separate them out. You can get other trays with different sized foam. The foam can be different heights for bigger figures. Um, and then you can see, so this one right here, actually, is in this tray. This tray is a lot taller, and it actually has pick and pluck foam, so I can specify how the foam will be separated out. And so I have him in there just actually standing up. Tilted this. Yeah. And Eric can play a shot of this later, but I can actually tear out the foam and decide how they'll be separated out and how that space will be used. It's got hard sides, so it's not just like a, a, a soft cloth bag to protect, protect your stuff. I assume this is kind of high-end for, um, I, for mini transportation. At the end of the day, I feel like it's really worth it. Spend, <laughs> even with you know the plastic, you're going to spend a lot of money on minis when you get to the point where you, you need something like this to transport them around. Oh, fair enough. Put that top layer on. 
and this guy just folds up and zips. Now, Battlefoam is not the only brand that does this, or the only option for this. I've found a few companies that do it. Battlefoam is the only company I found with the Molly webbing option on the outside, so I can attach different stuff to it, like pouches and stuff like that. Like this would be for a flashlight. I've actually got a dice tube in there. It fits perfectly, <laughs> right? So if I've got a favorite set of dice, I can put right in there. My uh, is it hex box, whatever, the, the, the thing that Savannah got me for anniversary. Oh, that holds your, your other dice. It goes right in there. It's perfect. I love it. But then I, I, don't, I have one bag that I grab that's got all my stuff in it, right? If I'm going to run a game. Uh, I've got this. This is for a smartphone. And it actually holds uh, a Moleskin notebook perfectly. I can put a book in this pouch here. It's super convenient um, because it sucks to run a game, get there, and realize you forgot one thing that you need to <laughs> run the game, right? Good thing uh, I'm running a game at home tomorrow. Yes, it's, it's so, great. People come to you and you can right. get into the next room. But if you spend you know, 45 minutes of traffic, you probably don't want to go right. back. Right, and it's 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 really nice quality. I, I really like it. It's comfortable. They've got you know shoulder straps that you can hook onto it. It's got a reinforced handle if you want to just carry it by the handle. You can actually go on the website on a web page and custom design the foam that they'll cut out, laser cut out, and send it to you if you have like a very Ooh. specific thing that you want to store. Uh, and again, there, there are other options for that too. But it is uh, you know what I have for transporting minis. I got for zero dollars because you gave it to me. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, That's a great option. I used that for years. And what it, it was just a, a Black and Decker like it was for tools, like for, like, yeah. for parts, like screws, washers, nuts yeah. and bolts. Yeah. And it's a box like this, and then it's got these trays that slide in. And I used that for years. And they're clear trays, so you just kind of feel. I'd say this tray is for undead. This tray is for PCs. This tray is for you know animals. You could label them if you wanted to, and then you just pop that tray out. Open it up, grab what you need, pop that in there, put it back in there, and you're good to go. You outgrew that that setup. I think you had too many. Plus, you had things that were sizes that didn't fit. I had too many, and I just I love the idea of this setup and being able to attach other things to it. So instead of having my my bag with my minis or my that box with minis, and then having to grab a box for my books, and then having to grab a right. box for my pencils and pens and my computer and all that, right? To if I can get that down, because I've already got the tube with the bat in my in it. Yep. You know, and I've got all the pins that you need for that, the different dice that you need. You can have four or five bags, right? My yeah. setup is the tube with the map that if I'm going to if I'm gonna run a game, and then I've got a smaller version of that that has my PCs in it, yeah. and then my my player's handbook in it. Right. So if I'm, if I'm playing the game, right, and we don't need minis, I have some stuff for mine, I just got that small one. I, I just leave that one at home. Oh, okay. Right? okay. I leave all of my trunk. And actually, <laughs> two weeks ago, I got in my car and my trunk was open. And I'm pretty sure oh. that I was moving some stuff and I accidentally opened up my trunk and I uh, didn't realize it. And it was just, it doesn't, when it's open, you can't really tell. Yeah. But my first thought was, oh shit, somebody stole all that stuff. We live in Portland, by the way, where we have a lot of nerd thugs come around, <laughs> steal stuff all the time. <laughs> um, so if somebody actually broke into my trunk, they looked at one of it like, oh my God, I don't want any of this stuff. And they walked away. But, which is fortunate because it was prepackaged to be as easy to steal as possible. <laughs> so right. I, need, I need to stop doing that. I'm too lazy. I'm or stop being that. paranoid. Or stop being, yeah. <laughs> well, now that, you know, the three people that watch know that we live in Portland, they're going to come and steal my stuff. So uh, you need to, you know, I need no, to No, that's true. Yeah. Uh, Don't steal my stuff, please. 
A great thing about that too is they actually sell these cardboard boxes as you can get. So you can get the foam more than will fit in there, and then you just put the foam trays in these boxes that will fit that, those foam trays, and then you can just swap the trays out as you want, depending on what you want to take. Um, and the tray, the the cardboard boxes are a much cheaper option. So you don't have to like keep buying those bags. Oh, yeah. You just store the boxes, and then that's for whatever you want to take with you during that game. I assume that's not cheap. Uh, it varies a lot. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, I'm a big fan of Battle Foam. Uh, and if you guys ever watch this, I love you guys. Um, <laughs> if you're interested in them, they're way cheaper on Amazon. I think I had to wait two weeks, but it was like 50 bucks cheaper. So oh, wow. Okay. For me, it was worth it. Um, I might think about getting I, one. I will say, so you, you know, you guys at Battle Foam get too pissed at me. I buy all the foam through Battle Foam because uh, then I know it'll fit. I know it's the right size. Um, and uh, I like to support them because they make a really good product and I want yeah. them to do well because I can keep buying foam from them. That bag is built so well, I don't think I'll <laughs> right. ever need to get a new one, right? I'll never replace it. They've got a bunch of very cool bags. I've already gotten two of them. I'm constantly eyeing the other ones they've got <laughs> to get like a different one um, so that they've definitely got me hook, line, and sinker there. But uh, you Man, you guys made really good bags. Uh, that's probably last me the rest of my life. Um, it's the, the things I attach to it. Again, I throw it in my trunk. I'm, it's, I'm not like trying to be gentle with it. Well, I mean, not like more than I normally would. And it, it for, to me, it looks brand new. Like I just got, I think it's like two years old. It looks brand new. Uh, I've taken it to multiple games, taken it to your place. My cat has been fascinated with it. <laughs> um, and he can destroy almost anything. It, it holds them all. There, there's. It's not like I open them up. They're all in different spots, and they got jostled around. Everything's where I left it when I open it up. Well worth uh, what I paid for. Well worth if I paid full price for it. Uh, it's amazing, and they don't sponsor us at all. I, I think he's actually trying to sell me. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't have one. Uh, I probably. I don't know. I, I, just, I love mine. I'm, I absolutely love mine. I'm almost convinced, but not quite. <laughs> Once, when I have twice as many minis as I have now, I'll probably break down and buy one. I'm also very OCD, though, so I love the idea that everything has a place. Like, I, I, I know where it goes, <laughs> and it's very common to me. Um, and it's also the reason probably that uh, minis are very dangerous for me. I love to collect things, and so I will buy minis I have actually no use for. <laughs> None. Uh, I know that when I get it, I'll never use it. And like, like I said, it, it doesn't matter. It's... I've got one in there. I think it works a lot of time. It's a little mouse. That's a samurai. I fell in love with it the second I saw it. And I had to have it. Never, I will never use it. Had to have it. It's to this day, my absolute favorite minis. Obviously, I'm far more utilitarian with my minis. I think every mini that I have bought has had a purpose before I bought it. Now, I may not have followed through with that purpose. I may have planned out a campaign that was... Uh, like a six or eight month long campaign and bought a mini that was going to be at the very end and never used it. Mm -hmm. And that's a good uh, way to do it. But I always had something in mind for every mini that I've purchased. And that's great. It's important to have a plan, right? <laughs> and Eric had a plan that this is what he wanted to do, this is what he wanted to achieve, and this is what he needed to do it. Um, I've had a plan, whereas these were the minis that I want, and so I have a wish list full of those minis, right? like I'm in your market. I don't have a plan to use them. I have a plan to get them. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on the plan, honestly. Well, it's... And since since I have a plan, sometimes I have to go out of my way to find yes. them. 
uh, I've had to buy from Amazon people. I've had to buy from eBay. But I feel very satisfied when I get a miniature that fits the the mold. It's like it's like casting as a, as a movie director casting. I am casting this miniature to play the part of this particular monster. And you've actually made very specific purchase choices based off of content. Oh yeah, which is one of the things that we're going to get into. Um, some of the, the the different stereotypes that you deal with with minis, with gaming in general, stuff yeah. like that. I yeah, um, there there are a lot of stereotypes in fantasy in general. Yes, uh, the whole fantasy genre since probably the the mid fifties to sixties has been a very kind of typecast reality that was created. We've got Conan the Barbarian, the very uh, muscle-bound mm-hmm. uh, character, uh, Boris Boris Vallejo. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he established uh, an aesthetic for what fantasy should look like right. for, for a certain set of the genre. Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien is, is kind of the... the the bedrock of much of modern fantasy. Pretty much the entirety of Tolkien is a male-centric reality. There are so few female characters, and the female characters that exist are their their ancillary characters that just happen to be female. It, it's just the nature of fantasy from in the fifties and sixties, and that ended up being the bedrock that was built on over time to the point where miniatures are all still kind of replaying that reality, the reality of muscle-bound hunks and bikini-clad women. Uh, you mentioned the fact that I I make purchase decisions based on an aesthetic and a reality that I'm interested in, and that is a reality that is more, more akin to a reality that more people would be interested in. So It's a fair perspective. Yes, men were knights. Men were paladins. The the real reality of the medieval world was a very male-centric world. But we're talking about a fantasy realm that is not focused on men anymore. And it and it used to be that the the Boris Vallejo and Tolkien's foundation kind of it it played well for many years and many decades until people who are not white guys from the suburbs were playing D&D. <laughs> Today, uh, I can run a, a game of D&D here and be half women, half men. Uh, and I really easily. appreciate it. Easily. Easily. Yeah. I can more than a few games where there were more women than men. Yeah. Games. And so I've, I've actually had to... Um, I have to give a shout-out to Matt Coville, who told me about... Uh, a miniature organization in England that was making miniatures specifically to represent women as women, not as sex objects. So the organization is called Oathsworn, uh, and they made two runs of miniatures that are, uh, they, they call them the Sensible Shoes line of miniatures, and they're all female characters of every sort of stereotype of the clerics, the barbarians, mm-hmm. uh, wizards and rogues. and So everyone that you can imagine with what you would expect a woman to look like if she was lugging a backpack, yeah. a sword, and real boots. Like, not high heels, not right. uh, uh, ballerina shoes, <laughs> not something crazy. And I really appreciate that because it helps me as a DM to be able to give those to players 
that would otherwise not feel like they're welcome at the table. And I think that's incredibly important. I think it's important to make people feel welcome. And I also think it's important that, for me, it's about being inclusive and not exclusive. Because I just want a game. You know, I want I want to play the game that I love, and I and the more people play it, the more I'm able to do that. The more people are able to appreciate it, and I think it's a fantastic thing. And growing up, it was uh, rough to get people to play D and D with you. There were times mm-hmm. when it was rough to just to say let people know that you play. Right? It was it was really looked down upon sometimes, and you know it, it, it could be a, a a bad move to let people know that you, you played Dungeons and Dragons. You know, today it's never been better. Yeah, for people who game. It's never been better than it is today. And it's and every day it gets better and better and better. So everything that makes it more accessible is a good thing. Anything that makes it less accessible in my eyes is a bad thing. I'm not saying that I'm opposed to the um the you know the, the bikini over, uh, over sexualized <laughs> minis. Because I think that they've got some for the male and the female. That's true. I think the problem is if I'm gonna play a male character and I want a male mini uh, I can get the jacked barbarian in a loincloth, if that, right? But I can also get somebody who's out of shape. I've got all these options, the full spectrum, yeah. right? Yeah. And you don't get that with female yeah. men's for the most part. You, you just don't. And so I'm not saying that having one type, having that type is the problem. I'm saying only having that type, it, it doesn't right. help anybody. It doesn't right. help anybody at all. You're going to get people who want to play, male or female, and they, they maybe what they're looking for, right? But they should have the option of playing something else, too. Eric showed these to me. I thought they were fantastic, right? Oh, the Oathsworms? Yeah. yeah. Just give people the option to make it more believable, if that's what you're looking for. A lot of people are going to want to look for that, right? You're going to have NPCs who want that. You know, it's, it's just not going to make sense to have PCs that are always like that, right? Yeah. You, you want to have that option. And it should but, be more accessible the way it is for the, the, you know, the, the male depicted minis. Right. In my and mind. It's sad that they, they had to start their own line because people like Reaper still play the old stereotypes. I have to go out of my way to find Reaper minis that represent women as women and not as a hypersexualized woman. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I find a, a Reaper mini that looks like the aesthetic I'm looking for, I buy it and I have a very small amount of them. I probably have two or three Reaper minis that are the aesthetic I'm looking for, whereas the Oathsworn, I've got like 16. You know, Reaper is going to make what sells. You can't fault them. Sadly, that, yes. Right? It's, oh, it's, not it's not sadly. It is, it is what That's it is. That's what they're going to do. So the fact that somebody made this is, I, I think it's great because they made it. Uh, and what's also very fantastic about it is that people are buying them. Yes. Which proves there's a market for it. Right. right? Which is key. That's You're not going to convince somebody in a way any more powerful than you do if you convince them with a dollar. There's sort of a, a snowball effect when it comes to an economy that's shifting like this. Women didn't feel welcome at the, at the D&D table for a long time. And now that they feel a little more welcome, the economy of miniatures and the artwork, the stories and the narrative, the, 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 the way that it's depicted as along gender lines, it has to shift to help them feel included mm-hmm. and once it does then there'll be more of them making more purchases being more a part of it and and, and it, it kind of feeds the loop of making sure the right dollars are going to the right people it's not just about the you know a gender split for gaming 
people who aren't gamers feel more welcome, right? Yeah, that's true. Adults feel more welcome. Yeah. Um, it, when I was a kid, the, the, one of the roughest things was, you know, I had friends who were religious or their parents were religious. And it was just like, it was just, it was a non-starter, right? And now it's just not a big deal. Like, it's so, all kinds of different kind of lines and stereotypes are being crossed as far as it's not a big deal. We're just, we're going to get together. We're going to have some fun. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's amazing. That's something that should be encouraged. F- when I was a kid, the, the perception was <laughs> this is something that happened to me just about 10 years ago. And I was here in Poland, I was 25 years old, doing work as a consultant. And I was in a customer's uh, office talking to them. And they asked me what I was going to do. Uh, I think we we're going to go out drinking or something. That like, what are your plans? So I'm going to go play some DD. DD, what's that? Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, some smirked and all that. And one person just started busting up laughing and looked at me and goes, So, you, like, you play that like, in your mom's basement or, like, you know, like just this very established, you know, preconceived notion of what that is, yeah. you know? Uh, and to this day, it persists, but it's nothing like it was before. No. Where it was, you know, you just you didn't even want to be associated with it. Or some people would enjoy it, but they didn't want to know that they enjoyed it, right? Yeah. Uh, and today, it's just not a big deal. We're very fortunate here in Portland. Guardian Games. They get more people at any one time playing Adventure League than anywhere else in America. And, and wow. bizarrely, Ameri- not bizarrely, America is the center of D&D. I, I went to England and I thought, it w- I thought there would be like a D&D scene there. Barely. I was in London, downtown London, looking for D&D uh, and there wasn't much. It was relatively sparse for one of the biggest cities in the world. Way more here in Portland. Yeah. Um, We've got a spot three blocks up the street yep. that we can get some stuff at. Yep. Up there. You uh, can walk 20 minutes across a bridge to Guardians. Guardians. Uh, the, the Brandy Day Games, where I go next to my apartment in Beaverton, where the outline area is, is it's awesome. Yeah. Um, There's one in all kinds Tigers. Of uh, I can't remember the name of the place now. I actually bought some stuff there. It's a great place. Um I can't remember the name, uh, but my my shop is the Portland Games Store up in North Portland. Uh, they have like the second best, no, maybe third best selection of miniatures, but they they have a decent selection. I think number one is actually probably Rainy Day Games. I, they have phenomenal. I think Rainy Day and Guardian go back and forth because Guardian Guardian's got that stash in the back. That they oh, that's right. They've got boxes of stuff. That if they you know about that, yeah, you look at them, but they don't—they're not hung up like the other ones yeah. are. Yeah, um, and they've got all kinds of. I don't know if they cycle through the inventory to keep it fresh, but they've got a bunch of stuff. Rainy days just got a wall. Yeah, of it's a wall like yeah. almost as big as this wall, um, and it's awesome. And I haven't been to Port- the Portland, uh, Game Store. Portland Game Store is like that wide by that tall. Mm-hmm. It's it's not much, but because it's on my bus route. I go home if I want to just look at minis. I'll get off the bus at their stop, yeah, and then head home. But I think and they cycle through. One of, very I was going to say one of the things that their strongest point is they're refreshing that constantly. Yeah, I've gone yep. rain day and seen the same thing. You know, three four months in a row. Most game stores, at least my game store, uh, if I go in there and I ask them, "Hey, could you buy me something?" They'll get it for me. Oh, yeah. I won't have to pay for so, shipping. Rainy Day or Guardian. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about Rainy Day is they will do those workshops for painting. They've oh, actually right. got this display, this really cool glass display 
of, of minis and they've got like five of every mini and it's you know the five are the different stages of the process of painting, oh right? yeah so yeah the unpainted you know it might be you know the the base the, the, the wash and all that but you can actually look at them and see the different processes and they'll, they'll have multiple sets of them so you can see different kinds of right te- techniques and all that um very cool and then like once a month they'll actually sit you down and show you how to do it uh, which is they, very cool they have i'm not sure what it is but at portland game store they have uh, one of those display cases, like they have at Rainy Day, with with miniatures, but it's just like the best of the best miniature painting on display. I, I guess a lot of game stores do that just to show off. Here's here's what's possible. The people who are as good at painting miniatures as you see on in those display cases, they're they're good enough that you could have them in a in a movie shot if they were a prop for a movie. Like they're absolutely phenomenal. I don't understand the the, de- the dedication that they they put into it because for me I do three coats of paint and I'm done. Right, <laughs> um, and it, it's very cool to see the process too. I, I mean, I would definitely recommend if, if it's something that interests somebody to just go on YouTube and oh yeah, find a couple people who do it because you, you want to make sure you get somebody who's good. I mean, people who are, who are really good at it and really talented at it, just watching them do it, it, it can be fun. I think we've touched on just about everything. I, I think we did a pretty good job. Okay. So if uh, if this is the end, subscribe, like the video, comment. I'm not sure what our next subject is. Up until now, almost everything that we covered was really related to engaging in and immersion in the game. I think that'll be common themes forever. Well, we, we were talking about doing an episode on kind of the stigma of, of playing. It, it'll be an episode, but it'll be a little different format rather yeah. than a conversation. It might, it might be a number of interviews with people we know. Maybe some people we don't know uh, about uh, the stigma of D and D, where it was in the past, where it is now, and why it got the stigma that it got, and all that. I think it's important how we how how we execute on that one. Uh, hopefully, um, the mics and uh, different camera worked out and uh, looked notably better. I did a new intro sequence; should stick with us for the foreseeable future. Um, other than that, I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Feels good. All right. It's time for the weekend. Okay. See you all next time. Happy Friday. See you next time. Next episode, we talk about metagaming. Most of us do it without thinking, but it's a cardinal sin of most role-playing. We'll discuss what constitutes metagaming and give some tips for how to avoid it. If you enjoy Dungeons & Tangents, please let us know by rating us on iTunes. You can also let us know by finding us on Twitter at Dungeon underscore Tangent and sending us a funny picture. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us.